Okay, I think we have enough uh, stability. Most of you are sitting down. Um, let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word, for your son and his ministry to us. We're grateful for his teaching. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was just contemplating the oddity of this moment. Um, Sermon on the Mount. Luke, scholars are unsure about whether or not it's the same moment, but it has Beatitudes, etc. It was at a level place. It actually points that out. And I'm in a hole. So it's, you guys are on the, on the mount, I guess. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is a uh, much argued over, oft quoted um, bit of Christological teaching. It's the longest single stretch of Christ's teaching in the scriptures. Um, very early in his ministry, uh, very shortly after his temptation, uh, he's got a ministry in Galilee going on, and this happens probably in Galilee. Um, everybody argues over what it's about, because an awful lot of quotables, you read, like reading through Shakespeare, you, you keep running across quotables um, that you recognize, and you will see them as over the next four weeks. We go through the three chapters that are the Sermon on the Mount, it's 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. Um, I've broken up uh, the sermon into topical arenas. So this first section is just where the Beatitudes and their ideas stop. And then um, the rest of chapter 5 next week, which is on all the you have heard it said, that section of the sermon. And then uh, piety issues in, early, in chapter 6. Um, and a few other things in chapter 7. But it, it, they're different lengths, but they're by, it's by topic. So this is the shortest number of verses. You'll see next week there are more, more verses, smaller typeface crammed onto the sheet. Um, now, some people view... Some people view the Sermon on the Mount as like a friend of mine called it the Constitution of the Christian Church. That's kind of gives you a little warm feeling or something like that. But then you get into it and you go, no, this is not the constitution of the Christian church. Um, you, you, we're trying to figure out what is Christ up to in his teaching. Because Christ, as you know, in his parables or in his arguments with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, he... Uh, he would say really incomprehensible things to them, things that would make them angry, things that would make them turn away. Other people would take the parable he gave and, and ask him what did it mean. We covered it in church on Sunday when, in Mark where, uh, where he, he reads the Pharisees, the riot act in one paragraph, the Sadducees in the next with very sophisticated argument against their position. Uh, a Pharisee is a categorical error. Sadducees uh, uh, inaccuracy in their reading of the of the uh, the Torah. And then when a guy asks an honest question, um, when a guy asks an honest question, he gives them a real honest answer. What is the greatest commandment? And Christ says, "You're not far from the kingdom." So we know that Christ has different um, 
you might say voices where he's potentially laying a trap for you or building something. And the question we have to answer in the Sermon on the Mount is, what is he up to in the sermon? Um, right before this, in chapter 4 of Matthew, uh, he, he goes about preaching, and it sums up his preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what John the Baptist had been preaching. That's what Christ is preaching. And he's claiming something inaugural in his ministry. He has come to announce the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to be aware also that Jews in the first century weren't Christians. They were Jews. There weren't any Christians. All the things that make for Christianity haven't happened yet. Jesus is still alive. He hasn't been crucified. He hasn't been raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit has not been poured out. He's dealing with a bunch of Jewish people who are sincerely pursuing God, but he's not dealing with Christians. So first off, you, you, you look at the recommendations or his, his teaching in this section saying his audience is his disciples, but don't think because you're a disciple of Christ that these disciples are in the same moment and boat you're in. They get there, some of them get there over time, but the question of what is he about is also dictated by who is he talking to. So first, verse 1 says, uh, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, So you know your audience, um, people who are following him. And I want to remind you, and you've heard me say this before, I'm sure, John 8, thereabouts, um, when uh, Christ is saying, it says, and he said to the, the, the Jews that believed in him. That's the first verse of that chapter. The last verse of that chapter is, and they took up stones to kill him. Okay? So, disciples of Christ are in and out. They're following him. A lot of people, thousands of people followed him at various times. Then he'd say something really hard like render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Or why don't you turn the other cheek? Or why don't, you, uh, um, why don't you drink my blood and eat my flesh? That was a weird one. They really, that stopped a lot of people. It horrified them. It sounded like he was talking about cannibalism. So um, the idea that you've got disciples, you need to know, one, they're not just rank and file. They're people that have heard the Christ teaching in Galilee. They have packed up and they're coming along to listen to him teach. And uh, it could have been because they were given a good potluck beforehand so they had to stick around for the Bible study. Perhaps that was it. I wouldn't let my gaze rest on any of you. But, uh... but remember that you're trying to figure out. Don't presume that the next well, say ten verses of the blesseds are to you in your moment. They might be. You got to figure out what it is. The, the scriptures are, are not just something that you, uh, uh, you build with how it sounds to you. Some people will do that with the Old Testament where they're, um, they will see an imperative or a, a strict remark by the, 
by Moses on something, and they will say, well, it's in the Bible. It's a strict remark. I must do it. And they never once turn to St. Paul and go, what does St. Paul view the law as? It's not the way to live. The law is to increase the trespass. The law is abolished. So if I view it without changing what my audience is, what my time frame is, this is before Christianity. These are people that we don't know where they are in their own pursuit of God, but they are at this point disciples after Christ. And he's telling them these things. Now, the other thing is because the Beatitudes <coughs> get the word beatitude uh, attached to it. It's not one you use in a sentence very often. And then they say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, there are certain words that are more religious sounding. Blessed is one of them. Um, you always like to pronounce the ED. Okay? It's not blessed. It's blessed. This is like the, the Lord's Prayer. We'll get to that later in the, in the sermon. Hallowed be thy name. Not hallowed. Hallowed. Because the poetry's better. But once you get into this pious reading, you might be thinking you're... It's very clearly a good from God. The word means happy. Okay? Fortunate. So if you think that this is a, uh, this is a state of fortunate happiness... From whatever power that Christ is uh, bringing into your life, a fortunate happiness is being applied to you along the lines that he gives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's also not reasonable to think that when he tells you the poor in spirit, I think the Luke account, I have the Luke account in the side margins over there. It's a different lineup of Beatitudes, the blessedness, and it includes woe to certain people. But he says in that one, um, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. No, it's a matter of whether the poor in spirit is, are they blessed in spirit, or are they Poor in spirit. Are they, what's, the, what's the read on that? But it's to this audience. Okay, it's not, um, he's not measuring the world that everyone, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's not God's care for all of those who've been through some tragedy that they are sad about. It's not the general revelation, the general grace of God on all of humanity. When they're poor in spirit, they get the kingdom of God. That anybody who's sad about flunking a test, you know, they shall be comforted. It's for this audience. Now, if you, if you look on ahead, there is a... Uh, and this audience is being promised a series of goods fortunate happinesses in spite of their circumstance and sometimes because of their circumstance. Just like this isn't a general truth about the poor or about the mourning or about the meek in verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. It's not merely picking those people up. It's out of the midst of the disciples, those who are in this situation are looking forward to this fortunate happiness. 
So if you're in a state where you're mourning, uh, you're low in the circumstance, you're poor either in spirit or in finances, um, you could be looking ahead to a fortunate state that God is going to grant you following this line. It's not merely uh, each one of these held singly and severally um, and you just happen to be the person this applies to. This applies to us all as a, you might say, a proceeding of disciples of God toward Christ who are going to be going further into something. They don't even know what it is. They don't know what the kingdom of heaven is. If you've read through the Gospels, you know that Christ is always trying to tell them the kingdom of heaven is like, you know, this, that, or the other thing. If we handed out blue books here and said, okay, tell me what the kingdom of heaven is, and here you are, a bunch of Protestants, I guess, uh, and we'd have a hard time putting words to it. But this, this whole section of the chapter is a really encouraging path, but it's a path to people who are only disciples, who had followed him, and he's talking to them that there is this good down the line. Remember, he's announcing in his ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have to know what it is you want, what is the kingdom of heaven, what is the repentance that is expected of you. Now, Thankfully, next week we find out how much we have to repent of that we didn't really consider, perhaps, as strongly as we should have. What we have to turn from to gain this. But this is the, this is the announcement of the good. This first uh, 16 verses is the announcement of the good that is coming at us um, in the kingdom. So those first three, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those are, those are, that's a state of lowness I remember talking to Doug Busby years ago about this, and uh, he, he liked to view the Sermon on the Mount as uh, uh, the process of the soul, the progress of the soul, uh, moving through the state of impoverished spirit, um, mourning in their situation, uh, becoming meek, and then, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's, a, that's, that's probably one of the most key verses of the whole sermon. Because once you decide you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll find out in the rest of the sermon what righteousness is defined as by Christ. What he thinks of piety. What he wants of you. But you're going to get to, whether you take Busby's position where it's actually laying out this as a process, or it is just a, 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 a delineation of all the aspects of people that they can reach and that they will know the kingdom of heaven satisfies them in this way. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. That whole thing, ask, knock, um, seek, Blessed are the merciful. Now these next, the six through um, nine, those four verses, are all actually descriptions of a person who's capable of something. The, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, are all people to whom things have happened. These are things the person is doing. He's reacting, whether it's part of a process 
or as just a description of a different kind of disciple. But the people who follow Christ faithfully unto the end get these rewards, satisfied with righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's, uh, it's what you've already got. It's not, you know, you, you have to realize when it says that at the end of the Lord's Prayer, which we'll get to next week someplace in the sermon. Um, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. People who don't understand mercy don't get mercy. People who don't, can't offer anyone else mercy, eh, Jesus is not big on giving you it, it to you. But he is big on giving it to someone who is merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. These are, these are all descriptions of kinds of people who have fortunate futures in God because of their state or their action, their capability. Now, it's like a path. I, like, I liked Busby's handling of it because it did, did see a path. You could probably see this path in yourself, whether Christ is thinking of it as a path. I like that image because it's like we're walking through a number of choices when people are listening to the gospel. The idea that we sort of dangle the gospel in front of people and say, you get saved and you get life eternal. You get forgiven of your sins and you get to go to heaven. It's all the gets, which is true. You get those things. But it's for those people who have sought God. When it says in Hebrews, um, I, the passage I quote too much, anyone who would draw near to God must first believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If I don't seek the righteousness of God, because the whole point of salvation is you're a bohunkus, and you don't know how to run your own life, and you're making awful choices, and made awful choices, and you know that the guilt is not just what you feel subjectively, it's what you are objectively. This is God's world. You did it wrong. And we have to come to the place in order, I don't just want forgiveness because I feel icky and it would be nice to be forgiven, but because I want righteousness more than I want sin. That I want, that I understand what it means to have mercy extended to me. That purity of heart, actual motivation, we'll talk about this next week, um, that it has so much to do, the, the intensification that Christ makes about uh, the commandments and piety, all have to do with the heart. All were just about how much more you are this way. Not what a, how much a stricter a rule can you keep. Because you can't keep strict rules. You don't have it in you. There has to be this, this purity of heart. Enable, and and we're, not, we're not even talking about the rewards. Because sometimes the rewards get repeated. There, some people get... Um, um, the kingdom of heaven is for the poor and also for those persecuted. We know that all these goods align to those who seek God to the end. And it's going to make not much difference as to what circumstance you're in as to whether you will, you know, whether it's the 
the low situation or the capable situation, but these people who are disciples of Jesus Christ will find that uh, uh, they get these goods, seeing God, um, get called the sons of God, obtain mercy. Um, remember that, that this is, again, a Jewish audience who's generally been listening to Pharisees who just said, okay, these are the rules and these are the intensifiers of the rules. So if you, can't, you cannot break the Sabbath. So let's just say that this amount of distance is a Sabbath day's journey so you don't break the Sabbath. I was talking to somebody, I forget who, about uh, some uh, working near, I think it was Logan Jones was over and uh, um, there was a Jewish uh, summer camp near his, where his parents grew up. And the Jewish summer camp employees would come over to the secular infidels, uh, the Protestants, to have them come into the camp to turn on all the lights and open the doors on the Sabbath because they couldn't break the Sabbath. Well, that's what the Pharisees were all about. All sorts of extra, more and more rules. Christ has come into the world to intensify the rules to the point where you are broken. You can't even... You, you can't even hope. You want righteousness, but you can't hope to attain it because it's all about his intensifier is toward the heart. It's about you have become merciful. You have become pure in heart. You've hungered and thirsted for righteousness. When Paul talks about it in Romans 7, when he says, I, I wanted the law of God with my inmost being, but I couldn't do it. He loved the law of God, but he couldn't do it. We're Part of the process towards Christ for disciples of Jesus in Palestine in the first century, they're hearing this for the first time. That this is not the kind of religion they have heard before, but it is a religion that is that much more holy, but it changes the axis along which we travel. It actually takes you to the end of the persons who are benefited in spite of their lowness, who are benefited because of their capability. And now this is how it pays out. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what, as I look back on it, these are, one, he's talking to disciples, and these are all about people who are pursuing something in Christ's teaching, and now they've gotten to the point where their righteousness they stand for has this end. This blessing is that they're persecuted. Now, it's happy are those, fortunately happy are those who are persecuted. I, I have the Luke account over here on the side because it goes a little bit over top. Blessed are you, verse 22 in the middle there, when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Okay, we're not just talking about some stoic, uh, yes, I have, I have done the deed of the faithful, and I'm, I'm grateful internally and intellectually. Leaping for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For behold, uh, for, for so their fathers did to the prophets. You're in good company. You know what it's like to be one of the godly in a world full of wickedness, this is, how, this is what will happen. This is one of the blessings. Blessed are you when men revile you, verse 11 here in Matthew. 
Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. It just misses that leap for joy part in Luke. Well, one thing, just on this, on this point, most people, you know, one of the difficulties we've had over the years is we recommend joy to people. Um, and I have actually had Christians who love Jesus and are going to heaven, we imagine, um, actually upbraid me, which is a nice biblical way of saying it. They upbraid me for telling them they should be rejoicing. Like, you can't expect me to rejoice all the time, even though it says rejoice in the Lord always. You can't expect that. I said, why are you arguing against joy? Did you, you guard that little bit of depression jealously? You just got to have it? And my, what, what, a, what a great place for depression. But here, not blessed are you when all men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. That is a great moment to not be joyful. Because people who want to guard some circumstance where they are uh, get to be not joyful, it'd be one of those bad situations. Someone forgot your 16th birthday. Uh, what, what else goes wrong in life? She broke up with you. I don't know. Stuff happens. Um, you lost some money in the markets. <laughs> you could do bad things happen. Maybe maybe a, a roving band of uh, agnostics beat you up in your front yard because you love Jesus, and you crawl into the house and the wife says, "What happened?" Well, the agnostics they they burned a question mark in my yard and they beat me up. And I'm rejoicing. You know, that's not, this is a great moment to not be rejoicing because we're operating like the world. In the disciples of Christ, Christ is throwing this line of all these things, all these fortunate happinesses along lines of behavior or circumstance. And, oh, we love it. We love having this on the fridge, a nice calligraphy, where it, it has the blessed going on. Not the fortunate happiness stuff, but blessed. And even though it says something you can't imagine, I don't know if you've ever been punched. Back in my day, like a rite of passage, you know, you, you got punched on the playground. It's not fun. Nobody wants it. It re makes you rethink the whole idea. And nobody's looking forward to this. And Christ is telling you, this is the path, this is the forward that you... Uh, uh, the joy that is coming at you. You get to be the person who is counting on the kingdom of heaven for your poverty, the comfort of God for what you're mourning over, the inheritance of all things for the person who knows he is nothing and nobody, the meek, satisfaction to righteousness, mercy for mercifulness, the sight of God, being able to see God, I, I, that, that goes by so simply. We know that from Moses, no one shall see his face and live. 
So we're gathering it's probably something maybe a little less directly ocular and more different kind of tangibleness. Or that you will have a future in which, it says uh, in 1 John, that uh, we shall, when we see him as he is, we shall be like him. That we have a future in which we shall see God and we shall be made into his likeness at that time. These are the things that are rewarding us, and, and we turn it into, I don't know if you've ever been to a church. I, I grew up a Southern Baptist, so I don't, I don't really know about you liturgical types, but I think occasionally we, we would say the, the, uh, 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 the Lord's Prayer in unison in the church. And uh, I bet you of a Sunday, you know, again, I'm, not, I'm a radical Anabaptist, I I don't promise to do this, but, but if I said, Our Father, I'd probably get as far as that. And if I said, Hallowed, next, the rest of the congregation would chime in. The only claim we'd we, we, we divide is whether or not it's trespasses or debtors. Trespasses, a little sibilant, but a little bit more formal. I prefer it. But we don't always say religious things all the time. Christ, the God is on earth, 30 years old-ish, your age, talking to a big crowd of people who were the elect people of God called out of all the nations, and they're sitting on a hillside, and he's laying the trajectory down. He's plotting the trajectory of their belief and faithfulness along lines of things that some sound really good, but only when we're chanting them back in church not when we're getting punched in the nose by an agnostic. Are you ready to be rejoicing for being beat up for the Lord's sake? I'm not suggesting like the Montanists, they would, they would go out and lean into it. You know, they would push the Romans as hard as they could to get persecuted. And the Romans are going, oh, we don't, we're not going to arrest you or anything. No, no. We don't believe in Caesar. We believe in Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, by saying that, there's a, there's a kind of a crisis of faith. Uh, you are what you believe, not what you chant. You are what you believe, not what your church believes. You are what you believe. And it's hard, and if you believe more than one thing, occupying the same claims... You're a double-minded man. You don't believe. If you believe that your reward is great in heaven, was that guy that was healed by Peter and um, Peter and John in the temple who's lame, and he's dancing next to them, walking, leaping, and praising God. That's leap with joy. Um, he knew he'd be. He knew what he had been. He knew what was now the case. He could walk on these legs. Do you believe that in heaven your reward will be great? Because you're getting punched in the nose by an agnostic. And it's not getting nicer. And you're, it's blood everywhere because it bleeds like nobody's business. And that's just somebody 
losing their cool and slugging you, let alone putting you to death. Are you, and I don't think you have to ask that question. It, 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 what if that happened in Moscow, Idaho? It isn't going to happen in Moscow, Idaho. But your faith is supposed to be along these lines. It's, again, we're not blessed by the poetry of the passage. It's, it's too easy. I would my, at my father's memorial, I was speaking on the Lordship of Christ, and uh, I made the point that my father wanted to refer to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was not because it sounded better to say the Lord Jesus Christ, but because he was the Lord. That's why. Examine yourself to find out whether or not you have the thing to fall back on, real belief that your reward will be great in heaven for being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because you were so good. Not Remember, with the agnostic, it's very easy for them to punch you because you're annoying. Okay, Not because you're righteous. Uh, in the modern Christian world, with apologetics going all the time, we sometimes could make ourselves annoying to the atheists and the agnostics. Um, and it's not right that they punch you, but they might have had a good reason. So make sure that your reason is for righteousness' sake and on the account of Jesus Christ. All kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Like any passage, this passage of the sermon is rich with uh, threads that you have to follow. Am I the disciple that could go through the poverty, the mourning? Am I the capable that could go through the hunger and searching, thirsting for righteousness? Am I merciful? Have you ever, you know, other than Jesus, I mean, I'm sure people have forgiven you of stuff. And I can remember certain sins when I got them confessed. It was almost tangible, the sensation of forgiveness. And how, you know, I'm all for it. I really like being forgiven. <laughs> I, you know, I can't say I always would claim that I really like forgiving quite so much. You know, uh, it's like honor, you know. You like getting honored, not big on honoring others. It's, uh, those are all dipsticks into your being and say, you know, I'm a bastard. You know, I, maybe I'm not on this list. I'm not the blessed with the fortunate happinesses are not coming my way because I really haven't worked out mercy, hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Because you, those are the things that precede the satisfaction or getting mercy yourself, seeing God, be called sons of God. Now, if you were to go through that verse 3 through 12, 9 verses, if you were to go through it and get rid of the poetry, just, just put happy. Happy are the poor, for, they sh for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have I pursued my discipleship with Jesus Christ that the promise of his kingdom is a happiness to me in my poverty? Whatever kind of poverty. Am I considering myself happy? And this goes back to my friends who don't like joy and seem to feel the need to ramp up their argument against it. 
all of this is, is the happy Christian life, right? All of them start out with the happy are the meek. You're going to have that silly grin on your face all the time. Because Jesus, God is in his heaven. Christ died for you. You've been pursuing him. And no matter what happens in the markets, to your favorite NFL team, uh, to your romances, whatever it is, whatever happened, these things are true. And I need to be about them if I want these happy elements, these fortunate gains to be mine. Now, by the time you get to the end of that little process, when the Lord, I mentioned this in the Sermon Sunday or two Sundays ago, uh, the passage where Christ says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what these people are doing. The disciples, it says, his disciples came to him. And he taught them. This is what he's teaching the people who are making the attempt to follow him. Listen to his teaching. It's not just repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is the substance of his teaching in this passage. The denial of self is pretty evident. Because many Christians would be saying the exact opposite. Well, of course I'm not happy when I'm poor. Even though mine is the kingdom of heaven. Of course I'm not happy. My grandma died. Now, when my father died, what has it been, a month and a half? Six weeks. Six weeks? Six weeks. Um, Great godly man. And... The family rejoiced. I mean, it was really good. A little creepy. <laughs> it's not like good riddance to bad rubbish. Um, no, he, was, he had lived a great life, faithful to the kingdom, done more than you for, for the kingdom of God. But he had denied himself for, since the Naval Academy. And he took up his cross and he followed Christ. So he was happy. He even looked mean. But if you knew him, he was happy all the time. He was rejoicing. That's why he was always singing. That's why we sang a lot at his memorial. <coughs> These are, this is not merely a, a nice refrigerator magnet. This is not you know, saccharine Christianity for your grandma to do the Beatitudes. Things that you're saying, skim over because I don't really understand what's being said or what it's really about. We got enough of what it's about to lean on us to say, do I accept the happiness in this circumstance for that reason? Because if I don't, I don't believe the Christ. If I don't believe, my, if I don't have the faith that I will see God or I don't have the faith that mine is the kingdom of heaven and my reward will be great in heaven. All you have to do is, is find out that, that um, some agnostic is ready to, you know, paste you one. But you found out that the lawyers finally settled the inheritance 
and you're getting $62 million. There's, the, the agnostic is still going to paste you one, but you don't really feel bad about that at all. Because $62 million is be waiting you in the bank. You believe in it. If you don't believe in it, you won't be fortunately happy. You'll just be saying those things because the creed tells you to say those things. Or the memorization program that you were on that you learned when you were a kid to chant back the Beatitudes. Now, when this is accomplished in us, when this is the direction, the hope, the, uh, uh, the promises, Christ is, is saying, this is the contract, this is where this following me goes. He then... Uh, This eventual good, this state that you reach. Now, he doesn't tell them about his death, burial, and resurrection. He doesn't tell, he tells the disciples later about that. But he's, he's, he, he's leaning on the people that listen to him to get them into a certain place. He wants them to be looking for these things, wanting these things. Because they're going to find out that they can't get these things through temple observances and sacrifices and paying their tithes. They're going to get these things uh, through something else. But the end result here in verses 13 through 16 is two images. One is, you are the salt of the earth. That's, what he, this, that's sort of what this group of people, everything, all these people who have been made happy by these events in their life, um, in Mark 9, it has another comment on it, on salt. It doesn't tell you much, but it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. So, you are, you are being brought to this situation to be salt. Now, what is... A lot of people say, well, they used to pay Roman soldiers in salt. Okay, uh, I use it to, on my steak. I couldn't eat my steak without it. Or it brings flavors out. Or it's purifying or it's preservative. Is salt preservative? Yes. The things you learn at Bible study. <laughs> but I want to quote Jesus on this because that's better. If your hand causes you to sin, this is Mark 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell. If you need a, a Bible reference, uh, when you refer to somebody, go to hell. Mark 9, <laughs> uh, the 43. Mark 9, 43. Go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, this is not getting any easier, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Then he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, 
But if the salt has lost its saltness, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So it lets you know a little bit more what Christ is thinking about the saltness that is um, uh, coming at you. Uh, that you are salted with fire. Um, I don't know if it's also referring when he says he will, be, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. But that's the nature of this, this intense commitment to righteousness. Now, I don't, don't think the Lord is actually recommending that you lop an arm off because the previous passage lets you know that it's a person that would cause you to sin. The, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him. They are the cause of sin. Your foot wasn't the cause of your sin. So you're thinking of applying this doctrine of, of rather radical claims to holiness, hunger and thirsting for, that you don't lose that, uh, you might say, sprinkling of intensification about your hope of righteousness. It's not merely, I go to a good church and, and they encourage us to be good and I don't get drunk. Okay, uh, that's not a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, have you ever had a thirst? I mean, this is affluence. You know, we live with abundance and, and you were all wallowing around in your food an hour ago. It was just done so I'd have an image to draw on. We don't want that to lose its taste. We don't want that fire that is being threatened uh, to be lost to us. Now he just, he says that just without explanation right here at the end of the Beatitudes. And then he changes his metaphor. You are the light of the world. You, you are present as a salt that has this, people call it nowadays, a little less powerfully, the Overton window. Christians in a society, a town like Moscow, it doesn't take many Christians for the morality of the town, not to be get converted to Christ or to be good, but the Overton window about what is good moves because the Christians are pursuing righteousness. People who like to sin like to have all the world sinning so they feel better about it. And so it's just a big spoiler. That it's just like someone who blows the curve on the, you don't like that guy very much, but it changes where the, the middle of the curve is, who passes the test. That's what we are with salt. But light of the world is a more, he gets into more of it here. Um, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand. And it gives light to, into all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Where you're going with this is, in all of this translation, is the distinction between sinful desire which serves you and God's desire which serves righteousness. Do you hunger for his and set yours aside? Not that you, you're going to get the salvation as a side benefit. He will take you to be, you will get the kingdom of God, you will see God. But you're there to serve him because you've recognized serving you isn't light. It isn't light. 
And the benefit to all of this, the, the person who's living, you might say, the Beatitudes out with that kind of happiness, is an unusual gain, a usual benefit um, in people's lives. They don't know. I mean, if you have to argue with some Christians about joy, if you have to argue with them, um, the world is far worse. They can only get it with sufficient alcohol or methamphetamines. You know, at some point, you have to recognize that the life that you are, um, it was 4th of July this week, wasn't it? We didn't have anything, didn't buy any fireworks, so we didn't need to because our neighbors had them out on the street. And although it was maybe 100 yards away from my retina, it was burning holes in it. You couldn't stop looking at the light coming through the trees and the kids giggling and shouting, freedom, freedom, freedom. <laughs> and I think they're just Mormons, you know, so I, I... America. But light does that for you. And you are that. If these things, if you lived in a state of fortunate happiness because of the way you um, pursued these things, you have become salt, you have become light. Now, in the, uh, in the next bit of chapter 5, uh, it gets dreadful because Jesus starts to go, you've heard it said that you can't do that. It's worse than that. <laughs> okay, let's, that's, we have a whole nice long section of, no, it's worse than that. You, this is buzzkill central. You know, and uh, but uh, very, it's still Jesus, and we still believe in him, and we there's a reason for why he said it. Well, let's. Uh, it's five minutes early, I realize, but if you're sweaty, you want to smoke. Uh, let's thank God, dear Lord. Thank you very much for the blessedness in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Yes. Next. What's the theme? Mexican next week. I will send out the link probably not till Friday. Um, if you brought something, don't forget to take your dishes, towels, lids, whatever.